Let's us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and as we gather together to praise your name, to read and study your word, to encourage one another, and Lord, to be obedient to what we find in Scripture, we ask, Lord, that you inhabit these praises of your people. We ask that today you would give us a basis, a starting point for a new week, that you'd give us what we need spiritually uh, to do what it is you expect us to do for your kingdom and glory. Lord, I ask that you uh, encourage us not only by word. We do welcome you to church this morning. And uh, those of you that are visiting with us or attending by way of live stream, we're glad to have you as well. Uh, if you're visiting, we always like to have guests. And uh, we do have a bulletin. Uh, we hope that you received one. There are some things in there that may be helpful, maybe answers to questions you may have. If your questions were not answered, we'd love the opportunity to be able to answer them and hopefully the opportunity to meet you as well. Uh, we have a list of announcements and events that we keep uh, on a web page, actually. And if you know what that funny-looking little box is on the back of the bulletin, you can access that document by hovering your phone over there. And uh, what I've done is bookmarked that so I don't need the bulletin anymore. I can just bring it up on the phone and we change it and make it live as the changes are posted. But again, glad to have you. And um, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Esther. And this is where we will continue our study. We've got a couple of weeks left after today. Uh, we're going to take care of most of chapter 9. We'll leave some of chapter 9 for next week. And then chapter 10 is very short. There's only three verses. And we'll conclude what has been a good summer study. We'll pick up in the book of Acts, where we left off at the end of John, uh, when this series is concluded. That'll be the first week of September. But this is chapter 9, the book of Esther, and this is um, more of a passage than we've been reading in the past, so this will take a few moments, but it'll put it in our mind where it needs to be. We'll ask the Lord for some help, and we'll begin. Verse 1 of chapter 9, the book of Esther, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed 
Parinchandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Porthana, and Aladia, Adalalia, these are tough, and Aridatha, and Parmishtha, and Arasai, and Aridai, and Bizatha. And here's what I should have said to start with. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 11. That very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. The king said to Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king's command this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews were in Susa, gathering also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered in on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. This is God's word. So let us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we're not going to be able to understand this without your help. As any time we open the word, we need your Holy Spirit to assist us, at least first of all, to understand what these things mean. And Lord, when that is done, we need your strength to be obedient in whatever way the scriptures call for our behavior to change. We thank you for this passage, for the book of Esther, for ancient history of stories that really happened. Lord, may they make a difference right here and now. May we see it clearly. Be our teacher. Make us your student. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, today is August the 15th. That means there are 132 days till Christmas. If any of you are counting, it's hot outside, and that's probably the last thing on your mind. But on Christmas, among the other things that you'll likely be doing, if you happen to find yourself in a room with a television that's on, there's a good chance you may be watching a movie that seems to be on repeat all day long. It's called A Christmas Story. It's the story of Ralphie who wanted the Red Rider BB gun. He couldn't have it because it was thought that if he did, he'd shoot his eye out, right? There's a part in that movie, and I bring it up because I know you all know it, that might help us wrap our mind around what's taking place in this passage of Scripture. There's a character in that movie named Scut Farkas. 
who terrorized little kids on their way to school. And the tension builds through the whole movie until Ralphie's walking alone with a lot on his mind and catches a snowball right in his glasses on his face. And that came from the direction of Scott Farkas, who jumps off the hood of this old truck and starts bullying this kid, as he'd done before, making fun of him and telling him to go ahead and cry. And then something happened. The narrator describes it as a fuse blew. And all of a sudden, little Ralphie heads toward Scott Farkas with every muscle in his body and beats him up honorably. That is what is called in political military science a preemptive strike. He could have waited to see if the first punch came from his enemy or make that no longer a possibility thinking in his mind that negotiations have failed, reasonability is not expected. We're going to do this, hopefully, so we can walk to school in peace. I think anybody that knows the movie knows that Ralphie never wanted to be Scott Farkas with his yellow eyes that he had no care for. He didn't want to be in his place and, you know, kick that king off the bully's throne and replace him. He just wanted to be able to mind his own business. So there are other places in Scripture that are better examples of nations at war and the idea of a preemptive strike. There are some who would say that from Japan's point of view, the preemptive strike on Pearl Harbor made sense in their position as an expansionist country. They hope to conquer and gain territory and to wait for the United States to develop further the ability to withstand them. It made sense for them to preemptively strike. Now, don't think it would surprise you that that in itself, the preemptive strike, is a debated, contested, argued over uh, and contentious entity. At what point do negotiations fail? At what point can someone take the moral high ground by striking first? It's always tough to think your way through that. Uh, one of the best examples I know of uh, sitting through certain classes in training for uh, some work that I was able to participate in and uh, our nation's capital, the Six Days War, same group of people we just read about, but in 1967, uh, from June 5 through June 10, it was actually the third war between Israelis and Arabs. It was a decisive victory, including the capture of the Sinai Peninsula, Gaza Strip, West Bank, Old City of Jerusalem, and Golan Heights, and has since those boundaries have been contested, fought over, rockets fired over until this very day. Uh, they're likely never going to be friends. It's always going to be difficult. But the way in which this battle took place, and I think this will help us today, in response to the apparent mobilization of its Arab neighbors, 
Early on the morning of June 5, Israel staged a sudden preemptive air assault that destroyed more than 90% of Egypt's air force on the tarmac. A similar air assault incapacitated the Syrian air force. Without cover from the air, the Egyptian army was left vulnerable to attack, and within three days, the Israelis had achieved an overwhelming victory on the ground, capturing the Gaza Strip and all of the Sinai Peninsula, all of the Sinai Peninsula up to the east bank of the Suez Canal. The UN Security Council called for a ceasefire on June 7. That was immediately accepted by Israel and Jordan. Egypt accepted the following day. Syria held out, however, continued to shell villages in northern Israel. On June 9, Israel launched an assault on the fortified Golan Heights, capturing it from Syrian forces after a day of heavy fighting. Syria accepted the ceasefire on June 10. Now, the Arab countries' losses in the conflict were disastrous. Egypt's casualties numbered more than 11,000 with 6,000 for Jordan, 1,000 for Syria, compared with only 700 for Israel. The Arab armies also suffered crippling losses of weaponry and equipment. The lopsidedness of the defeat demoralized both the Arab public and the political elite. Months after the war, in November, the United Nations passed UN Resolution 242, which called for Israel's withdrawal from the territories it had captured in the war in exchange for lasting peace. That resolution became the basis for diplomatic efforts between Israel and its neighbors, including the Camp David Accords with Egypt and the push for a two-state solution with Palestinians, which to this day still has never occurred, and it likely never will. There's been more than one preemptive attack in Israel's history. We're reading about one today. We just looked at one that happened in the 60s. There have been skirmishes since. But what we look at is an ancient biblical historical record of how a group of people were saved. A reversal of sorts. Let's look back at the text the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, that's the day that we've been looking at for chapters and chapters. This is the day where Jews' enemies are going to have the opportunity to kill them. And now, since the fall of Haman, the Jews have the capacity to defend themselves. But look at how the Scripture describes how it took place. The very day... When the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. And that's point number one for our outline today. Reversal. We've seen reversals all over. Reversals of things you would think would go one way and they've gone the opposite. Well, this is the final and the most dramatic reversal as we've been studying. Chapter 9, the Jews braced themselves for an attack. According to the terms of the second decree, they prepared themselves to gather their defenses. The fighting seems to have been intense. We read that it spread to the Acropolis and Susa. This would suggest that the Jews had enemies in high places besides Haman. Because you almost wondered, okay, you've got two edicts. Both of them look as if they cancel the other out. Who would have... 
any motivation other than risking their life for what? Stuff? It should be crickets on the 13th day of Adar. But no, even though Haman's dead, the evil he had plotted is not. So it suggests that there's enemies in high places, even though we read that governors mentioned were loyal to the Jews because of Mordecai, and they choose, chose not to fought, uh, fight. So, might as well just go ahead and take care of the problems associated with this passage and its discussion in modern day. The passage is violent. There's no way around it. And that naturally gives us a distaste for it. Especially when we're in church and we're reading our Bibles and the rest of the world thinks we live by them. At least we try to. So whenever it appears that you're condoning what looks like violence as mandated in Scripture, well, we have that's, that's something to slow down and talk about. Just like in the previous chapter, though, it seems the storyteller is careful to give the impression that the Jews have acted honorably. And if you look in verse 5, I think that's probably the stickiest of all the, the verses here in the passage. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. That's the, the words that were in the edict, words that were used against them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. This is one of those where we've got words here, but we need to try to figure out what these words mean and what, what's the tone of these words. Because you could use the word pleased to say, well, they had pleasure in violence. I don't think that's what that meant to be, especially when they were pleased, uh, did as they pleased to those who hated them. We talked about this last week. An eye for an eye was actually a limiter to keep one from going further. The, the, the crime needed to be punished, but not in excess to the damage that was done with the crime itself. We're bad about that, though. We'd actually do good to limit ourselves to that. Usually in the playground, if someone says one bad word, do they just stop at one bad word back? One insult? All right, you insulted me. I'll insult you back. No, usually you take that up. And it turns into a, kind of a freestyle insult until somebody stops. Thinking of another movie, but I'll let you wonder what that one is. This is not what the Jews did, and I think it's clear in the, the Scriptures. We're meant to see a people who had been under an unjust sentence of death, but have been rescued. It's reversal here. The record tells us that only men were killed, though they were allowed to go to the extent of killing women and children. That was the command against them, for it to be a cancellation. Both edicts said the same. And in fact, no plunder was taken. That's mentioned three times. I tried to emphasize it when we read through it. If this is something where they're hoping to take advantage, then why would they not touch the plunder? Well, they didn't. We'll get to that in a moment. 
All this to show that the Jews were not exploiting their advantage for wrongful gain. And here's where I think it might be helpful just to realize that we sit in a position of disadvantage in trying to really understand where these people are coming from. Uh, Living in exiles in Persia uh, 2,500 years ago is not at all like living in America in a suburb of Raleigh's city, uh, Carolina's capital. It's just hard to do that. Um, and, and that's just not, that's, that's not even the end of it. In between this and the Six-Day War was World War II. Uh, and even people write books these days and claim that the Holocaust never happened. Um, there really is no way for us here to relate to them there whether you're talking about Six-Day War, World War II, or exiled in Persia. It's going to be a stretch for us. That's why I thought it important to say, let's interpret this as it was written according to the way they saw it and how they acted. And whether or not we would act that way or see it that way is a different thing altogether. But we don't want to take what we've got, put it back on the Scripture and say, no, it means this, when really it didn't mean that at all. So let's look at the second point, and that is resistance. Not only is there a reversal, the reversal includes a resistance effort to defend themselves. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces, this was outside the citadel there, also gathered, here it is, to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. It wasn't just that they hated them on the inside. No, there were things that came along with that hatred. So some might say, well, this is self-defense. But the whole spirit of a preemptive strike is basically shoot them before they shoot you. Now, we could talk about all kinds of stuff here. Um, And the right to defend oneself and one's property. I think most of it is common sense. Though everything is used as a political football these days. Sometimes we're asked to check common sense for the expediency of one situation or another. But this is a preeminent strike. Um, The casualties are severely lopsided. Now, it doesn't tell us who drew the first sword. But it seems clear that though not the aggressor, and in Persia by conscription, they took full advantage of this edict. And they did so honorably. This was not some ancient version of the purge. We've got too many people here, so we're just going to suspend all the laws. You do what you want, and we should turn out better the next day. At least if it was thought of that way by Persians, it wasn't thought of that way by the Jews. You've got to remember they were also hated. Even though Haman was dead, it didn't mean that the threat that he had devised 
was dead too. No more than if assassination attempts on Hitler had taken him out early before the Reich was weakened that that would have stopped all the ideology that had been I don't know even the word to say brainwashed the people the things still would have continued until the war was won um, and this again is where I think we find ourselves at a disadvantage I'm not sure the American political climate has the stomach to call anything wrong anymore. To just flat out say, this is wrong, this is evil, we won't stand for this, tolerate it. Now, you might hear that language if people start shooting at us. But to come right out and say it, it's just not part of, of our culture anymore. Um, and anyone who's been a student of our uh, Participation, participation in warfare over the years know that the further back you look the clearer the enemy is and the more recent the less defined that is and there's trouble with sending boys with deadly weapons away from home and not telling them who the bad guy is or why he's bad they'll come back confused in the worst sense of the word so I don't think that's what's going on here, even though it's hard for us to look at it through that type of lens. And as believers in the Bible, we're kind of stuck with just either believing what it says where it says it, or cherry-picking. Either we have a box for evil, and we have a box for good and we are willing to die for the good and will risk our lives to get rid of the evil or we're all confused there just has to be a point to where we look at this story and say the story started out with a group of people who living under a unjust death sentence at the hands of powerful people who hate their guts. But by the end of the book, those enemies are dead. And Israel goes on living their lives, raising their children in exile. That seems to be a good ending. So... It doesn't need to be as sticky as it needs to. And we don't need to get lost in the fog as it might feel like. And I think it's probably a good idea that we familiarize ourselves with history because when you live in peacetime too long, you can forget this type of thing. That's why the Jews were to tell their children uh, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who, who took them out of Egypt, out of bondage. Uh, sometimes we need reminders. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to put myself in the shoes of God's chosen people as they were in World War II or way back in Persia. It's just not something I can do. I can try to watch and admire and 
You know, there are books, there's history, there are films. Most of the film industry is for entertainment, but sometimes they can tell a story. I think there comes a time where you should visit the Holocaust Museum if you have a chance to do it. There's a reason why these people say, never again. I don't know that we'll ever be in a spot where we can say, I know exactly how you feel. But we can try, and it'd probably be a healthy exercise. I visited both of those museums. There's one in Israel. There's one in the capital. But a totally different experience. Now, the one in America is telling the story to Americans who didn't live it. The one over in Israel is telling the story to those who lived through it. Totally different stories. But when I was over in the Holy Land, if some of you have been there before, it's very quiet. And you saw a lot of kids in uniform. In fact, that's, that's what they do. They all go through and they watch. They remember and they look never again when they leave. The one in America, there was a lot of young kids. They came there on school buses. And they were loud. And they were talking. They were playing with their phones. In fact, there's places where some of the videos down where you have to be tall enough to see it. So little eyes don't see. The kids thought that stuff was funny. Some of them. It wasn't a good experience for me. I just thought something's lost. Something's wrong with the American experiment. If this is a joke. Um, Life and death is a joke. And maybe it's just their age. It'll make sense to them later. But yeah, it's good to rehearse those things, to remember those things. Um, Spielberg, with his uh, Schindler's List, all kinds of debate as to whether or not that actually was a reflection of history and how it worked. You've got others, um, same with uh, Life is Beautiful, a more recent Italian film. You've got to read subtitles with that one. Um, The Pianist was probably the one that was most difficult for me to watch. I don't know why, but the guy plays the piano. The whole family went through the same thing everyone else did, but there's one scene where their homes have been wrecked, they're pushing them out, they're boarding trains, but they've still got on clothes that look like they're headed for work. It's early. And these characters you've spent about an hour getting to know, uh, this man who plays the piano and his sister, they're, they're... Uh, young adults but the one line out of the whole movie that just seemed to bother me he said I know it's a funny time to say this speaking to his sister the whole crowd of people and they got whatever they can spare he said I wish I knew you better he knows it's over it's the end he won't see her again and why because one group of people think that They have the right to kill them all. Folks, there's a valuable lesson in this. There is a real thing as evil. And people really do think, some of them, that it's okay to kill others they don't like. Jesus would say later, Hey, you've heard it said you shouldn't murder. I'm going to tell you where that starts. I'm going to tell you You can't call your brother a fool 
It starts with a way of thinking. They're less important than I am. Ramp that up and you have a Third Reich. So to try to figure out what these people will do and how they will respond, you almost wonder if given the opportunity, the revolt might be so dramatic that there's a total role reversal. That we have a new enemy, a new wrong, a new evil, but it's known as Israel rather than Persia. But that's not what happens in this story. This is what I think is most useful. So we've got reversal and we've got resistance. But the third is restraint. Because even so, verse 1 is, is the, the stress that's laid right out of the gate is that the fact is there were a group that purposed to destroy them, but that's not what happened. A reversal took place. They themselves were destroyed. And then you've got in verse 11, um, the very day the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel was reported to the king. So the king's getting the news for the afternoon. And he seems actually to be more impressed than perturbed when he says, uh, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Almost as if he expected, you know, this is going to get out of hand. And then he asked Esther, what do you do? What's your, what's your wish? It shall be granted. She asked for another day, and we don't know why it's not told us. Maybe she knew of something that was going to go over and above the edict. Maybe this was inside military intel. We don't know. But then there's this business of hanging the ten sons of Haman on the gallows. Now, it's unclear as if they were killed that way or they were killed first and then displayed that way. But that's significant to a Jewish readership because the prophets had always said, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. Which is the way we understand the crucifixion to have been the curse of sin on Jesus but as far as restraint goes, we'll just get to the point here. Three times it is said that the Jews did not lay a hand on the plunder. It's obvious that the Jews are more interested in securing peace than dividing the spoils. Why didn't they take the plunder? You remember the background between Mordecai, the son of Kish, as it was described, and Haman the Agagite? We talked about this in one of the first messages. One of those passages in the scripture that's a little less palatable for the junior church flannel graph. Samuel had told Saul how to take care of the Amalekites through voice of the Lord. Get rid of all of them. All of them. They have been a thorn in the flesh. They attacked you. But from the rear on your way through town peacefully. There's a lot that goes into the story. But this is how God said to take care of them. But they didn't. Saul kept the best of the animals after he was told not to. And don't touch the plunder. And he did. And he kept Agag. You know, from Haman the Agagite, their king. Isn't told what they're going to do with him, but a lot, a lot of times in military battle, you, uh, you had fun with the enemy's king. 
which is not something that the Jews were supposed to do either. So as the story concludes, Samuel hacks Agag to pieces before the Lord and sets the house in order. The spirit of God's hand is off of Saul. It's a mess until David is chosen king. So in their history, they know what happens if they touch the plunder. The point of the war was not to get even and to take stuff. The, part, the point of the war was to get rid of the enemy. And that's it. Now, later down the road, you know what happened at Ai when Achan decided he was going to take, well, that was actually earlier, take part of the spoils, a Babylonian garment. I do remember that from the flannel graph. The next battle was lost. There was sin in the camp. This isn't about you growing strong off the backs of your enemy. It's about your being different, like me, to represent who I am. We're going to do all this different. Our rules of engagement are different. And so it is the case here. No one would be able to say that the Jews just wanted to take what they could or to have what they had coming to them. No one could say that they would only be happy if they switched positions with those who hated them. Many of Israel's enemies articulate it specifically in that way. We want everything you've got. So the book opened, they were about to die. As the book closes, their enemies are dead. And at this point, it's really all over but the shouting. In fact, verse 1 is really the conclusion of the book and everything that happens, chapter 9, 2 thereon, is basically wrap-up. Now, it's inspired scripture, so we study wrap-up too, even though we could. I've been able to attend enough hockey games to know that they don't always go the same way. But if, by midway through the third period, there's sufficient score for the home team against the visitors, the music starts to change. There's certain songs you can expect to hear. And then at the end, when the time is over, you hear the goal horn as the final thing and everybody shouts now it's over because we're shouting now if it's the opposite visitor team has more goals the music changes too it's, it's, it's different uh, it, it's not don't stop believing but it's close <laughs> and at the end of the game all you get is this wimpy buzzer not the goal horn you don't want to hear your goal horn You've just lost. But if it's a victory, there's shouting to be done. That, that's what's fun. Plus, you got this whole storm surge thing. It's even better. At this point, Israel's ready for that party. And they can party with clear consciences. They didn't touch the plunder. They only killed their enemies. They can walk down the street to school, even as slaves, in relative peace. They're not home. They're still exiles. So from Psalm 30, basically what you've got is verse 11. You have turned me from mourning into dancing. 
You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So as far as what's in this for us, I, I think we should learn from their attitude, not just the way they handled themselves in ancient Israel, but the way they handled themselves as our ally presently. Always got to be careful with the plunder. And I don't know, we carry that in a bunch of different directions. But as a nation under God, the American experiment, blessed beyond measure, have we been faithful to leave our hands off the plunder? Because in, in putting together a moral government, there's a lot of other things that, that are jettisoned and should be. Some of that stuff I worry we picked up along the way. And spiritually speaking, if forget about our nation, just forget about the church in America. This is where the prosperity gospel is probably the most insidious. A gospel that would make a church full of rich young rulers is not a gospel. As far as a reversal, we've got Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As far as resistance, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Ours is a spiritual warfare just to try to do the right thing for two days in a row. Sometimes is, is, is our worst enemy. But as far as restraint goes, we've got Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then He'll add all those other things. And so long as we follow that format, I think we'll be fine. We'll be more than fine. But when we get into trying to figure out, okay, is, is this a bad guy? Should we hit first? That's usually decided in a moment when all options are spent. We've got lots of options. We can talk for a long time. But when it comes to ruling our homes for the case and glory of the gospel, we can learn a lot from these Jews who didn't touch the plunder. All they wanted was peace, raise their families. And I think that would make good Americans as well. Makes good daddies and mommies and brothers and sisters. Well, we've got more to look at next week. Uh, the stipulations of how to remember this as far as a holiday. You've got things you do in your family as far as traditions, things that were important you want to never forget. So it is with Purim. It's a holiday they practice to this day. But with that said, let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this scripture that you've given to us and the details of how things were reversed. Lord, we thank you for the New Testament where we learn how our death sentence was reversed. We had sinned against you. And because of your Father's wrath, we were guilty.
But Lord, because of your dying in our place, that is no more. So living in that spiritual position of privilege, Lord, we ask that you help us not get into trouble, that we understand to get a little too big would be for you to become very small, way too small. Lord, bless our church, our homes. May we deal even with conflict in an honorable way. Where just to live the life you have given us is enough. And that we certainly wouldn't fight over things that put us in a better place by taking things from others that aren't ours. Lord, I thank you for this time together as a church family. And I ask that you bless us and that you give us what it takes to be obedient to your word. Bring us back again for your honor and glory. And Lord, be praised in the way we conclude this service and song and benediction. We ask this in your name. Amen.